Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Got your ballot? Still making up your mind on some of those confusing California propositions? We got you covered. On today's California Report magazine, we'll break down some of those props, like a measure that would give parolees the right to vote. For me, it's important because now I have a son. I could be talking about voting. I could have, you know, something visual like the sticker on my chest that says I voted to where my son sees it and it changes his narrative or his perspective on what it is to vote. And a proposition that could change things for dialysis patients who are mostly Latinx and Black. It makes me angry because they're playing politics, but they're putting patients like me in the middle of it. We'll also hear about measures that could raise commercial property taxes and a ban on affirmative action and allow 17-year-olds to vote in the primaries. Plus, one of the most expensive proposition campaigns in California history. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start with two measures that could change existing laws created by earlier propositions— on the ballot decades ago. First, Prop 13, passed by voters in 1978. It was a landmark measure that cut property taxes for homeowners. Critics say it's been devastating to public schools. KQED's politics and government editor Scott Schaefer explains the thinking behind Prop 13 and how this year's vote on Prop 15 could change a key element of that law by raising taxes on commercial properties. In 1978, inflation was running high, and it was driving up property taxes paid by California homeowners. And a political gadfly in Southern California was on it. We have a new revolution against the arrogant politicians and insensitive bureaucrats. Howard Jarvis collected enough signatures that year to place a massive property tax cut on the ballot, Proposition 13. On KQED TV that year, he framed Prop 13 this way. The people that are being hurt are the elderly people on limited incomes 
who have spent all their life earning a home, and the state is kicking them out in droves. And this is what this is about. But in that same KQED appearance, San Francisco Assemblyman Leo McCarthy noted the corporations were also going to get huge tax breaks under the Jarvis measure. Let me give you an example of some of the business uh, cuts that would result. Pacific Telephone would have a $130 million cut. Standard Oil, $13 million. Southern Pacific, $12 million. They didn't ask for the cuts, but Mr. Jarvis is kind enough to give them to them. Prop 13 did not distinguish between residential and commercial property. But Joel Fox, who worked for Howard Jarvis, said California had always treated commercial and residential property the same way. So in writing an amendment, to the Constitution on property taxes. It was just simple to maintain what was already in the Constitution. In fact, business groups opposed Prop 13 and gave money to defeat it. But since it passed, residential and commercial property taxes have only gone up more than 2% when a property was sold. But how selling a property was legally defined was left to the legislature. Enter San Francisco Democrat Willie Brown. I wrote the implementation process after it had been passed by the voters. As chairman of the Assembly Revenue and Tax Committee, Brown wrote the law defining exactly when a commercial property would be reassessed. He says now they blew it. We should have said any time there is a change in the ownership of the property through any means, that constitutes a transfer for reassessment purposes. Under the legislature's rules, a commercial property was only reassessed when 50% or more of the property legally changed hands. And big corporations have benefited ever since. Prop 15 on the November ballot would close that corporate loophole, reassessing commercial property and basing the taxes on current market value, not what it costs to buy it. Business groups oppose Prop 15, saying that raising taxes in the middle of a recession is a bad idea. But Manuel Pastor, director of the USC Program for Environmental and Regional Equity, notes that things have changed in California since Prop 13 passed, slashing funds for public schools and services. The question is, are we the California that passed Prop 13? Are we the California that wants to reevaluate that and think about investments in young people? If Prop 15 passes, many will say it's the end of an era that ushered in a California tax revolt. For The California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. So Prop 15 is about amending an earlier proposition passed by California voters. There's another measure on the ballot that could overturn an earlier proposition. Back in 1996, Californians voted to ban affirmative action. Now voters will decide whether to end that ban with a new measure, Prop 16. The vote will come just as so many Californians are taking to the streets demanding justice around questions of race. But as KQED's Sacramento reporter Katie Orr tells us, recent polls show the measure is struggling. The killing of George Floyd this past spring sparked protests across the country, including this one in Oakland. 
But amidst the marches and emotion, California lawmakers also saw an opportunity to overturn California's ban on affirmative action in public education, hiring and contracting. Democratic Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, who chairs the Legislative Black Caucus, jumped at the chance, introducing a constitutional amendment to overturn the ban. California's regressive ban on equal opportunity programs such as affirmative action denies women and people of color a level playing field in the workplace and in education. But victory is far from a sure thing. Janelle Scott from UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Education says that's because Californians have gotten used to living with the ban for so long. So I think it's a hard campaign to convince people that maybe some of our systems or processes are actually leaving people out through no fault of their own. On the other hand, the recent college admission scandals demonstrate that some wealthy students get their own kind of preferential treatment. As Professor Scott notes, a recent state audit of the UC system singled out Berkeley for improperly admitting 42 students who were connected to the UC regents, major donors, or staff. There's been a different kind of affirmative action in place for wealthy people and really maybe some internal reckoning about people who have have had access to preferential admissions through their wealth or political or social connections. Gail Harriet is a law professor at the private University of San Diego and works with the No on 16 campaign. She says race should not be a factor in college admissions. The standards can vary from school to school. You know, some schools may look for pure academic talent. Other schools may take into consideration athletic talent, entrepreneurial talent, leadership talent, all of these things, just not race. Backers of Prop 16 know they have a tough road ahead. Recent polls show two-thirds of likely voters are opposed or undecided. And with the presidential election, a pandemic, and 11 other statewide measures all fighting for attention, it will be difficult for supporters of affirmative action to break through with voters. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. Voting rights are a contentious topic this and almost every election year. And California has two propositions on the November ballot that could change who is allowed to vote in our state. Joining me to talk about this now is Guy Marzarati, who's California politics and government reporter at KQED, the station where we produce the California Report. Hi, Guy. Hey, Sasha. So first, let's talk about Prop 17, which is the measure that would restore voting rights to people on parole. Tell us, what does the law say right now in California in terms of voting rights for former inmates and and parolees? So currently, the law in California requires that people coming out of state prison have to complete their parole term before they can get the right to vote back. So Proposition 17 would allow people on parole um, to get their right to vote back. And we should say California's parole population drastically increased uh, in, in the late 20th century as the state kind of built up this system of mass incarceration. 
which meant that the the voting rights were really affected for Black and Latino Californians specifically. And so this is why supporters of Prop 17 have called the system as it exists today kind of a modern-day poll tax. And we've seen changes leading up to this in recent years. For example, uh, if you are, are serving probation or under supervision in a county jail, you currently have the right to vote. So, Guy, are Prop 17 supporters saying this would correct the disproportionate impact on people of color? who've lost their voting rights because they've served time and are still on parole. Exactly. And supporters say that if, you know, if parole is really meant to be a period of reintegration where you're bringing people back into the community, they're getting jobs, they're raising families, getting education, voting is a natural extension of that and could, in fact, add on top of that and even increase the civic engagement for these parolees. I talked to Jose Gonzalez. He's one of the Californians on parole. In fact, his parole term is for life. So under current law, he would not get his right to vote back. Um, He lives in L.A. When he got out of uh, prison about five years ago, he went to school, got a degree. He's raising a family and working. But he says that it's really the right to vote that he's looking forward to to further help him reintegrate into society. For me, it's important because now I have a son. I could be talking about voting. I could have, you know, something visual like the sticker on my chest that says I voted to where my son sees it and it changes his narrative or his perspective on what it is to vote. And what do opponents of Prop 17 say? Opponents say that parole is a part of your prison sentence, that basically they kind of equate it to a football field. It's the 10-yard line. You still have a ways to go before you're done. And so they say they shouldn't get this uh, right to vote back until they can prove that they are you know, ready for it or integrated back into society. So what would change for California if Prop 17 passes? I mean, how many more people would get the right to vote in our state? So we'd be looking at a universe of, of about 40,000 parolees estimated who would get the right to vote back. It's a pretty small number. But proponents say beyond just the number of voters this would impact, they say this is, you know, really about fairness and furthering the goals uh, of the state's parole system of, you know, letting people have play a role uh, in their communities, which they say a right to vote is a natural extension of. Guy, another measure on the ballot that would expand the number of Californians eligible to vote is Prop 18, the Youth Voter Initiative. That one would basically allow 17-year-olds who turn 18 by the time of the general election to vote in the primary election, right? That's right. So again, this is a a somewhat limited universe of voters, but larger than Prop 17. There are some estimates that it's roughly 200,000 people could be newly eligible to vote in California primary and special elections because their birthday is in that window between uh, the primary and the general. They're allowed to vote in the general election. Basically, Prop 18 would give them uh, a head start and allow the people who are ultimately voting on on folks in in the general election to pick who gets there by voting in primary and special elections. Well, let's hear from one of those young activists who support this change, Ella Yazaki from San Francisco. She says as a teenager, she couldn't wait to vote. And I was like, oh, my God, in 2020, I'm going to be 18. And being a a young political junkie, I was super duper excited about that already. Um, And then I kind of had this like second thought, like, wait, I'm not going to be 18 by the primary. Opponents of Prop 18 have really been focusing their arguments on the idea that 17 year olds, you know, who are still going to be in high school, most likely living at home, might be more likely to be under the influence of their teachers and parents in terms of how they vote. 
Yeah, and you know, that may come uh, as news to a lot of parents and teachers who struggle to get their 17-year-olds on board with anything. But yes, that is an (laughs) argument we've heard from the no side. And they really point to the unique situation of California's direct democracy. And that unlike in a candidate race, they might have uh, a direct impact in maybe some close elections that happen on, on school bonds and taxes that they will weigh in on directly. So, Guy, have other states tried this, rolling back the voting age to 17 for the primaries? Yeah, we've seen a number of states uh, try this idea out, actually going as far back as Ohio in 1981. And more recently in some nearby states, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico have made this change. Um, And, you know, I think the conversation around this has probably changed in the last couple of years as we've seen teenagers play such an active role in protests around gun control to the Black Lives Matter protest, climate change. They're hoping that maybe this will give an extra push to states to expand the right to vote to younger voters. That was Guy Marzarati, reporter with the Politics and Government Desk at KQED. Next, we're going to turn to the issue of kidney dialysis. If it doesn't affect you personally, it might sound, well, boring. Just like John Oliver said when he did a show about this topic. Right now, you're probably getting ready to push the button on your TV remote marked, Dear God, literally anything else. (laughs) But I promise you, this is worth listening to. Right now, Californians are voting on Proposition 23, which would require dialysis clinics to have a doctor on site at all times. And the measure is getting a lot of attention from health groups that advocate for patients of color because 57 percent of dialysis patients in the state are black or Latinx. And those patients have the most to gain or lose from Prop 23, depending on how you interpret the policy. Here to help us with that is the California Reports health correspondent, April Demboski. Looking back now, Dwayne Cox says his path to kidney failure started in childhood. He lives in L.A. now, but he grew up on the south side of Chicago. In the projects, mostly. So I fought off gangs. I also had two parents that were both um, heroin addicts. So there was lots of stress and a poor diet. His dad left when he was 14. I was the man of the house very, very early. And he was diagnosed with high blood pressure when he was 16. He managed it with medications, but they made him tired and he had to pee all the time. That really became a problem in his 40s when he got a field job with the Obama campaign. It meant that I had to keep up with with all these college students. So for three months, he stopped taking his medications. And I had to keep up. Even now, he says he would do it again. But it was a turning point in his health. In 2009, his doctor told him he had kidney failure and he would have to start dialysis. I actually, like most people, didn't even know what my kidneys were, where they were, or what they did. African-Americans, like Cox, are almost four times more likely to end up with kidney failure than whites. This is because of genetic and socioeconomic factors that make African-Americans more likely to develop high blood pressure or diabetes, the main diseases that cause kidney failure. And Black people are less likely to have access to regular health care to prevent it. But once you have kidney failure, it's different. The U.S. government pays for dialysis for anyone who needs it. Here's how John Oliver puts it. 
Essentially, we have universal health care in this country for one organ in the body. It's, it's like your kidneys, and only your kidneys, are Canadian. Across the U.S., nearly half a million patients get hooked up to dialysis machines three times a week for three to four hours each time. The vast majority of these dialysis clinics are owned by just two companies, DeVita and Fresenius. Together, they earned $2 billion in profits last year. Dialysis nurse Magellan Hanford says it's a business built on the backs of people of color. I grew up in South Central L.A., and when I was growing up, there was a liquor store on every corner. And now? There's a dialysis clinic on every corner in L.A. Hanford says those clinics don't invest enough of their profits into care. Patients dripping blood all over the place, mice in clinics, roaches in clinics, technicians taking shortcuts. He says nurses don't have enough time between patients to follow proper infection control protocols. The industry is built on numbers. We need to get patients in and we need to get patients out. This is why Hanford has been trying to help unionize staff so they can have more say in clinic operations. But they haven't succeeded. That's where Prop 23 comes in. Doing propositions are the only voice that we have as workers. But here's the thing. Prop 23 requiring clinics to have doctors on site at all times? This won't fix Hanford's complaints. In fact, there's little evidence that it will improve patient health at all. Medicare tested this for more than a decade. It incentivized doctors to visit their dialysis patients more often, four times a month instead of one or two. Then they studied which patients did better. Guess what? Doesn't matter. Indiana University nephrologist Jay Wish says health outcomes were the same. It doesn't affect outcomes. In fact, patients who were seen less often by their doctors actually had better survival rates. Here's the other thing about Prop 23. The doctor on site, it can be any kind of doctor, one who doesn't know a thing about dialysis. That's even more dangerous than having nobody there. This is why patient Dwayne Cox is against Prop 23. He says the union that's backing the measure is just using the ballot box to gain leverage in its own labor disputes. It makes me angry because they're playing politics, but they're putting patients like me in the middle of it. It bothers him that voters are being asked to decide what's best for his health. For The California Report, I'm April Dimbosky. I'm a busy single mom, and the flexibility of app-based driving works for my family. I could go out there and make money, and I could still see my daughter. The Sacramento politicians passed a new law making it illegal to work as independent contractors. 22 lets drivers like me continue to drive as independent contractors. And 22 provides new benefits for drivers, including health care. Vote yes on... You've probably seen or heard ads like these in favor of Prop 22. Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and other app-based delivery and rideshare companies have spent more than $188 million and counting in support of the measure, making it the most well-funded proposition in recent California history. So why are these companies pouring so much money into a ballot measure? Well, I'm joined by KQED reporter Sam Harnett, who's done a lot of reporting on the gig economy, and he's here to walk us through Prop 22. So tell us what this measure would do. I know it's very complicated, but give us the bare bones. 
Well, in the simplest terms, what this measure would do is create a carve-out or exemption for a handful of gig companies so that they don't have to abide by state labor law. It would allow uh, app-based transportation and delivery companies to continue classifying their workers as contractors and thereby denying them basic employee protections like workers' compensation, overtime, etc. Well, it also promises to give those workers some additional protections, right, like minimum wage and, and some health benefits? Yeah, and this is where it gets a little complicated. They are saying that if Prop 22 passes, workers are going to still be contractors, but they'll get some additional benefits, like a contractor plus, basically. Uh, And the big one that they're touting is this minimum wage guarantee. They're saying, okay, drivers are going to get 120% of the local minimum wage. But that's only for engaged driving time. And this is the key point. Engaged driving time means when someone requests a ride and you pick that passenger up and drop them off, You get guaranteed minimum wage for that time, but all of the rest of the time that you're driving around looking for a ride or waiting for a restaurant to uh, ask you to deliver food for DoorDash, say, you're not guaranteed minimum wage for that time. The UC Berkeley Labor Center did a study, and they found if you calculate uh, all that that time that drivers are just driving around, that this guarantee is actually only uh, like about five and a half dollars, which doesn't sound that great. Well, you've talked to a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers over the years as you've covered the growth of the industry. What are you hearing from drivers? I think uh, a driver in the Los Angeles area, Noemi Torres, she sums it up the best. We want to be independent contractors. At least when I went into the picture, that was the goal. I have my own business. But Uber doesn't treat us like independent contractors. We're not able to set our rates. We're not able to work when we want to. We pretty much have to work when we have to. You know, she told me, listen, if I want to make enough money for my family, I've got to drive 40, 50, 60 hours a week. I have to drive during crunch times. Um, I can't decide that I want to charge more money for my ride or less. So she realizes that she's actually being treated like an employee and she's not running her own business. And Noemi Torres is against Proposition 22. Well, the ads that we're seeing everywhere in support of Prop 22 include voices from a lot of drivers who say they support the measure. They like the flexibility. And one ad I saw even said, you know, by a four-to-one margin, drivers support Prop 22. 80% of drivers drive only a few hours a week. And by a four-to-one margin, drivers want to stay independent contractors. Prop 22. Well, this is another little tricky thing. Um, There are lots of surveys of drivers. Often they're done by the gig companies themselves that ask a question in a way that is kind of flawed. I mean, they basically said, do you do you want to be a, a contractor and have flexibility or do you want to have it be an employee, lose that flexibility, but have some benefits? They're creating this sort of false choice. Flexibility does not is not tied to contractor status. You can be an employee, just look at like a programmer at Google. They're employees, but they have tons of flexibility. Or you can be a contractor like an Uber driver. And if you want to make ends meet, then you don't have that much flexibility at all. How does the pandemic affect how drivers are feeling about this measure? I mean, we've seen ridership go way down. When the pandemic started, you saw lots and lots of Uber and Lyft drivers go to try to collect unemployment. But because they've been classified as contractors, Uber and Lyft hadn't paid a cent into state unemployment fronts. So a lot of drivers are sort of left in the lurch. And that has pushed the needle uh, forward and and made more drivers want uh, employee status. So, Sam, the companies backing this ballot measure, like Uber and Lyft, why do they say it's important? 
I mean, this is uh, essential for Uber and Lyft's business model. And if they have to convert all their workers to employees, they're going to be looking at significantly higher costs. Uh, again, they're going to have to play into the unemployment fund. They're going to have to pay for workers' compensation. So Uber and Lyft are fighting this, and the other good companies are fighting this uh, tooth and nail. So they're turning to, to the voters, saying, listen, you know, there's not a lot of jobs. We're in this pandemic. People need to work, and people can just flip on our app. Uh, and, and get work. You know, on the other side, labor's saying, listen, you're going to normalize a really dangerous labor model. You're going to create this kind of third category that other companies can exploit if they want to deny their workers basic employee protections. Sam Harnett covers technology and labor for KQED's Silicon Valley desk. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. We air across the state. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. There are so many more California propositions to unpack, from stem cell research to rent control. So check out our nonpartisan voter guide at kqed.org slash voter guide. And remember to vote. You can drop off your ballot in the mail, in person at a polling site, or in a specially marked drop-off box. Just make sure to check for the county seal to make sure it's official. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. Our technical producer is Rob Spate. And we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. Our team includes Julia McAvoy, Scott Schaefer, Polly Stryker, Angela Corral, and Ariella Markowitz. I'm Sasha Coca. And this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation, supporting KQED special broadcasts from college campuses and other higher education reporting. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.